0: guys, this is Pastor Justin Bowers, and you're listening to the New Community Podcast. Uh, we're thrilled that you're listening today, and we hope that this is a great experience for you. I wanted to let you know that you can support the work of New Community and all that God is doing down here in West Virginia by going to New Community WV and then clicking on the Give tab Uh, We would love to have your support, and we would be excited that you would journey with us in all that God has called us to, to be a people finding and following Jesus beyond Sundays. Enjoy the podcast. So here's my question today. How, How many of you remember the very first Bible somebody gave you? Maybe you've never been given one, and that's okay. If you you need a Bible, we have them, and we would love to give you one today. I, I remember the little Bible that I was given. How many of you, the first Bible you got was the little white Bible, and it had the genuine, authentic, imitation leather. Genuine, authentic imitation. Everybody got that? That'll set in in a little bit. Um, Maybe you were really lucky and it had your name engraved on it. Anybody get the name engraving? It was like the gold lettering you got on it. I remember that Bible. I also remember in our home on the table where you walked in the door, I remember the big, like not big, humongous family Bible. How many of you had the massive Family Bible, and it was it was just enormous. It was heavy. Some of you didn't have any Bibles, or you're just not participating today. That's okay. Um, it, it was it was always open to one spot. It never got touched because nobody could lift it. It was too heavy. It had all the bookmarks, like 15 red leather or velvet or something bookmarks in it. it, it did you ever have a preacher that preached out of that Bible? it would break this music stand. It was that big. That's that's the way that it was. And here's what I remember about the Bibles in my life, which is kind of a weird conversation to start. But at that point, I didn't really know anything about what was in the Bible. Like, I probably knew some of the Bible stories. We might have gone to church, and everybody knew David and Goliath or Daniel in the Lion's Den. But I don't know that I could have told you that those stories were actually in the Bible. I just knew they were good stories. It's kind of a cool story when somebody gets to fight with lions and win. Like, that's kind of neat. In high school, though, the Bible started to become a little more important to me. I don't know if it was that way for you or not, but I was the Christian kid. I got to work at some church camps. I had some leaders really speak into my life and challenge me. Like, you need to be reading the Bible. They they use the word devotionally. You need to be having quiet times with the Bible. I was like, I don't hear the Bible, so it's always quiet. Like that's and I remember that. But so I started to read the Bible. I started to do those things. But as I approached the Bible at that phase of life, what it was really about was what does the Bible say to me? So whatever verses I read, I wanted to know what was those, what were those verses saying to me? How might I apply those verses to my life? So I loved Philippians 413, right? I can do All things through Christ to strength. I never got to dunk a basketball, so that didn't turn out to be true, but it was really about me. Now, here's what happened. I got a little bit older, and I went to college, and I had this amazing professor. His name was Dr. Dean Smith. Now, I'm just going to tell you, if you're a doctor and your first name is Dean, you're just brilliant. Like, that's just... Period. That's all or at least I think that's the way it is. And and the way that he taught the Bible was different than anything i had ever imagined. He started to unpack for us not just the stories in the Bible, but the story actually of the Bible. And, and, and what my feeling was in that moment, like as I started to kind of every other day just be in this class and hearing the whole story of the Bible and not just the stories in the Bible, I, I, I thought like I should be really happy, I should be really excited, but I actually found myself really ticked off. I was really mad because I was like, why did nobody in my faith history, my past religious upbringing, why didn't they tell me this? Like, why didn't they unpack the story of the Bible? Why didn't they tell me that there were things written clear back in Genesis and Exodus that connected all the way over to the stories of Jesus in the New Testament? Why would we not share that? See, we've been in this series that we've called You Asked For It. And, and many of you have submitted questions that we've been kind of dealing with one-on-one-on-one and, and taking individually. And, and so for this week, there were, there were several questions that came in that just dealt simply with the nature of the Bible and the Scriptures. Questions that wrestled with why is the, the word of God so confusing? Why is it so hard to read or, or, or why is it hard to understand? Or how can one word mean one thing but also have a different meaning completely? And what do we do with that? And, and so today, I want to kind of encompass all those questions to the best we can. And I want to deal with just the nature of the Bible. You know, 66 books that compose your Bible, written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,500, maybe more than 1,500 years. And I'm going to try to answer every single question you have about the Bible in about the next 30 minutes, not at all, because it can't be done, right? It it can't be done. But I do want today, what I do want to do is share a principle with you that, that for me, has unlocked the Scriptures in a way that, that, that helps me understand the story of the Bible before I give you the principle here's here's what I want to know anybody in the room a, a car guy car girl anybody you can just what what's your dream car this is like the non- participation group like I, don't, I have to ask question five times to get you to participate okay so so the, the the car guys the car girls what's your dream car somebody just shout it out if you say minivan we're gonna kick you out of the church no kidding that was the same car in the first service that somebody said I mean that was Stacy's yeah anybody got another one Oh my goodness. Anybody else? Some of you are lost. Mustang, do you have a year color? Do you have a color? Blue, okay. Let's go with Blue Mustang because we did the Camaro already. So let me give you an illustration of this. Let's say that I had the Blue Mustang in my garage sitting there. And I actually began to dismantle the blue Mustang. Let's say that I took it apart down to every nut, every bolt, every piece of metal, plastic, the rubber on the wheels. It was just in a million different pieces. And then let's say I took all of those pieces. I boxed them up, put them in crates. I brought them in here on a Sunday morning. And I said, you guys are never going to believe it. I got a blue Mustang. Isn't it beautiful? And I held up the nuts and the bolts. And I said, look, at this is a Mustang bolt. Isn't this amazing? It would be ridiculous, Right. Like, for me to say, what do you think of my Mustang? You, you would think that I was crazy. Now, here's the thing. Is it still a Mustang? Technically, all the components of the Mustang are there. And you could make a Mustang out. You I couldn't. You could make a Mustang out of those pieces. But it is not a Mustang. And you and I both know why. Because a Mustang was never meant to be dismantled and held up for people to look at. It was never meant to be picked apart. It was never meant to be gathered around once a week and talked about once a week and then discussed in small group studies once a week about what the original language of the Mustang word meant and then to leave. And you see where I'm going with this, right? You see, when I went to college and I sat in class with this professor who started to tell the whole story of scripture, what he was really doing for me was putting the Mustang back together, he, he was giving me a gift, showing me that this book was meant to, like the Mustang, be driven, right? Or better yet, to drive our lives. See, a Mustang is meant to be inhabited, enjoyed, and it had a purpose, just like the Scriptures. Now, here's where this takes us. See, there's a principle that matters when we approach Scripture, and it's the thing that I want you to get today. If you're taking notes, you can write this down or, or, or kind of take a picture, whatever. But, but here's what I would say. Before we can ever understand the stories in the Bible, we need to understand the story of the Bible. Before we ever are able to grasp what the stories in the Bible are all about, we need to understand the story of the Bible. So you may know the stories in the Bible, David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, the Jesus stories, Noah and the ark, all all those amazing stories. But to grab on to the richness, to live into what it's invited us to, we need to know the story of the Bible. Now, let let me tell you kind of the flip side of this. Some of you have friends, some of you may be this person who you want to discount the Bible. Right? like You want to look at the Bible and say, well, it's too archaic, it's too ancient, maybe it's too conservative, too, too legalistic, or it doesn't match up with science, I don't really have any use for it. Maybe you have friends like that or you feel that way. Here's what I would say. When you start to know, when you start to understand the story of the Bible, it's much harder to discount the stories in the Bible. It becomes much more difficult. See, some folks I know, and 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 maybe you're one of those, have those reasons to discount. And, and maybe it's not any of the things I've mentioned. Maybe you grew up in a church setting where it wasn't the problem you had with the stories they told about the Bible. It wasn't the stories in the Bible. It was the parts of the Bible they didn't talk about. Anybody got that? Like, there's a, there's a Noah and the Ark story that we all got in Sunday school, but you didn't get the R-rated real version. A- amen? A- anybody know the Noah and the Ark story? is really, really, like, graphic. The, the students in the first service were like I'm going home and reading Noah in the ark like that see there's a lot to the bible that that maybe we we didn't hear about there's places where you know you look at the story of god and you go man god seems a little bit harsh a little bit violent and aggressive here we're going to talk about that by the way in a couple weeks and, and and so maybe those parts are where you the theology didn't make sense and you decided to either walk away from faith or walk away from Scripture. What, what I want to say is, we're going to go there today. We're going to tell not just a story in the Bible, but the story of the Bible. Now, as I've done with with every week of this series, if you have follow up questions, you can text them. Write text questions to two four five eight seven, then write your question. You can send that in. I haven't gotten any the past two weeks. Everything is just clear. I'm doing an amazing job teaching, or you don't care. Um, so today, I want to look at a scripture. Then I want to unpack. Some things about the story of the Bible. So, 2 Timothy 3 is where we're going to start. If you have it on your phone or in your hand, we'll put it on the screen as well. Let's look at this verse, these verses. Verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3. Here's what it says. Paul writes to this young man, Timothy. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So let me just say this. Timothy was a church kid. He had had the B-I-B-L-E from the day he was born, right? He had had those things. He was handed the scriptures, and Paul says, you know these things. Continue in them. He says, I don't want you to dismantle the Mustang. I want you to actually drive it. I want you to actually engage the things that you know. Then Paul makes this point that we maybe have all heard, or many of us have heard, verse 16. He says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, let me tell you about this, and then I'm going to tell you where my mind goes in these scriptures. This this phrase, all scripture is God-breathed. It's a really cool phrase in the scriptures. Actually, the only time in the Bible that this Greek word for God-breathed is used. It's the word theonoustos. Theo means God. Noustos means spirit. It's spirit-inspired. It's God-breathed out. And, and Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, that's amazing, right? And that's where churches are like, look, the Bible is the inspir- inspired, authoritative, word of God. Now, here's where my mind goes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of dismantle this verse for you. Are you ready? Some of you are going to be messed up after this next three minutes. Sorry about that, but we're going to go there, okay? Where my mind goes is, which Bible did Paul have? Because he's still kind of writing the Bible at this point. If we're reading 2 Timothy and he's saying all scriptures God breathed, he can't be talking about 2 Timothy, or maybe he is, maybe he's really arrogant. Anybody with me on this? This is where my 75 questions go off the rails, right? Like, what scriptures is Paul talking about? They didn't have Bible bookstores, okay? Anybody been to the Bible bookstore lately? They didn't have Amazon, the Bible bookstore with the Christian mints. They, they didn't have that, and so where did they, what was he talking about? Was it Was it just the Old Testament? Because if he's saying all the Old Testament is inspired, but uh, I'm not sure about the New Testament yet, then I've got some issues there. What is he saying? Is Paul saying what he wrote was inspired again? Kind of arrogant. He was Paul. Maybe he could get away with it. How do we know, how do we discern which are inspired and which are not? How many of you are just thoroughly confused at this point? It's exhausting, right? This is This is difficult. But I want you to pause for a moment and think again what he's saying to Timothy. He's saying, I want you to live the truth that you know comes from the scriptures. I want you to drive. I want you to not pick it apart. I want you to understand it. And Paul says, these scriptures are inspired so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This theonoustos, this inspiration is meant to affect your life. Paul might today, I doubt it, but he might say, I want you to go beyond Sundays. Maybe not. But this verse is helpful. It gives us that understanding. And that's where I want to spend our time. We're going to talk about what inspired means. We're going to talk about exactly what Paul was talking about. But I want to give you some characteristics, I think, that we miss when it comes to the story of the Bible. And then make sure we understand how this is to affect us. So just a few things quickly. Here's the first. When we talk about the Bible, what we're talking about first and foremost, and this may be common sense, but you need to hear it because we forget it. The Bible is, number one, a Jewish book. It's not a white American book. Amen? Some of you are like, I don't know. <laughs> it's a Jewish book. It means it has a culture. It has a context to it. The scriptures, the Old Testament specifically, let's start there. If you don't know this, the Bible is divided into two parts. The Old Testament, the New Testament. The Old Testament is before Jesus. The New Testament is Jesus and after. But the Old Testament was passed down generation to generation through this tradition called the oral tradition. It was a storytelling tradition. I told all the kids first service, imagine every TV, phone, iPad was ripped out of your house and you had to actually look at each other. I'm going to tell the parents now because the parents aren't very good at that either. But imagine that every night we had no entertainment except to tell stories. We would probably become really good at telling stories. We'd probably have some neat stories. See, the Jewish people had the stories of the Old Testament. And eventually, their Old Testament was consolidated into what they called, now everybody's going to get this word, the Tanakh. Everybody say Tanakh. They would have said Tanakh. They would have spelled it T-N-K because they don't use vowels. Fascinating to me, right? This is not overly complex. They're actually abbreviating each section of what they understood to be their holy scriptures. Therefore, the T is the Torah. Everybody say Torah. Say it like a good Jewish boy or girl. Torah. Torah. Well done. The Torah means teaching. It consists of the books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. Now, my daughter and I were talking about this this week because she doesn't have a choice either, and she said, I got a question. And I said, I love questions. She said, how did, how did they get Genesis? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, God created humans. Which human was there writing that down? said that's an amazing question nobody else is going to know the answer to that either so we talked about the fact that Moses when Moses led the Israelites out of slavery and he ended up in the wilderness he went up on the mountain and he was given remember Charlton Heston and he was given 10 commandments but he spent 40 days 10 commandments don't take that long he was given the Torah he was given all five books God was telling him the story and that's the first five books, the Torah. The second part of this, the Nevi'im, Nevi'im is known as the prophets and the history. So the Nevi'im consists of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. Third, we come to what's called the Ketuvim. This is the wisdom. These all sound like diseases to me, by the way. The Ketavim is what's known as the writings, the wisdom, the Hebrew wisdom literature, like Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and the poetry, like the Psalms. Esther, Daniel, the Book of Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah, even Chronicles. Some of these fall into that. So they had this tradition. Now, over the years, over the course of history, by the way, many of you are going to get bored out of your minds the next 10, 15 minutes. Hang with me. It's worth it. Okay? Some of you are going to geek out like I do you and I are connected today. The rest of you just pretend for my sake, okay? Here's the deal. Over the years, they had to take their oral tradition and they said, we have to, uh, we have to guard these stories. We have to c- continue and maintain these stories. So we have to record them. So about the last three centuries B.C., They began to record these. They had people called the scribes, and the scribes would translate the scriptures from Hebrew, from their original writings, into what was called the Greek translation, which was called the Septuagint. Everybody say it's Septuagint. In your Bible, you may have footnotes that reference the Septuagint, or the LXX is the abbreviation. This was, hang with me, Jewish people spoke Hebrew. It was the Greek translation of their Hebrew scriptures. This was the earliest recorded copies of the, of the Old Testament, and it was in a Greek language. A thousand years later, 1,000 AD, they created what they called the Masoretic Text, which was the Hebrew language of the Old Testament. And they had both of these now, the Septuagint and the Masoretic Text. Now, many of you are already bored. I'm going to tell you a super cool story. This is one of my favorite stories of Scripture. The temple in Jerusalem in the first century A.D. was incredibly corrupt. There was so much worship, legalistic hypocrisy, things going on, religious hypocrisy, that a certain group of religious people said, we've got to get out of this place if it's the last thing we ever do. No 70s music fans. Okay. Right. That, that was improv, too. Um, But this group of people called the Essenes, they ended up actually leaving Jerusalem and going and living like hermits, like a monastic life in this tiny little community called Qumran. And all day, every day, this is what it looks like there, all day, every day, they would copy scriptures. They would write scriptures over and over. So they had the copy of Exodus, and they would copy it word for word, line by line, onto their scrolls. They didn't have Uh, iPads or laptops. They, They copied and copied and copied. And they thought if we can copy the scriptures and know the word of God and become perfectly righteous, even for just one day, God will come and redeem everything. Guess what? It didn't happen. And they would take these scrolls, and they would roll them up, and they would put them away to preserve them. And so here's what happens. In 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem is leveled. It's destroyed. Most likely, along with all the original scripture documents, the original Hebrew documents that Moses had written, it's destroyed. Now, let me jump forward a couple thousand years. 1947, there's this cool little Bedouin shepherd boy named Muhammad. You can bring that picture back up if you would. And Muhammad is out looking for his lost goat. Hang with me because this story's good. And he says, well, I'm in Qumran looking for my goat. Maybe my goat got into one of these caves. Can you see the cave? And he begins throwing rocks into the caves because that's what you do as a boy. Let's hit the goat. He'll come out. We'll know where he is. Everything's happy. He doesn't hear a goat, but he does hear the sound of something shattering inside. He climbs into the cave and he finds a clay pot and the clay pot is broken. And inside the clay pot is a scroll and he finds pot after pot after pot after pot and full of scrolls. These became known, by the way, well, let me pause before I say that. He brings the scrolls to a cobbler and an antiquities dealer named Kondo, where Indiana Jones was about to come. That's what it sounds like to me. No, he comes and he brings the scrolls to Kondo, and they determine, hey, these are pretty valuable because they're pretty old. They're actually dated from the third century BC all the way to the first century AD, and they find together there's copy after copy after copy of the same scrolls, over and over and over again. These become known as, you guessed it, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here's what they found. 11 different caves in this area containing 1,100 ancient documents. Now, watch this. That's mind-blowing enough. 1,100 ancient documents and 100,000 fragments of documents. Archaeologists have for years, since 1947, studied these. Here's the coolest part of this. These documents come from every Old Testament book, of the Septuagint, except for the book of Esther. They found other manuscripts as well. They found one copy of the whole entire book unharmed of Isaiah. The scroll was 25 feet long. That's a lot of reading and a lot of writing. The Dead Sea Scrolls, here's here's why this matters. The Dead Sea Scrolls predated that Masoretic text that was done in 1000 AD. They predated it by 1000 years. So the archaeologists began to say, we have to compare we have new sources we have to compare because if we compare these and they don't match up, then we know they're fake. We know there's something off. We can't call these inspired. And what they found is they were extremely well-preserved and the scriptures were almost identical. One Hebrew scholar, Miller Burrow, says it's a matter of wonder that through something like a 1,000 years, the text underwent such little alteration. And the alterations that were there, one scholar says, was like a comma or a parenthesis. That's the only alterations they found. It's amazing. Right? And so the Old Testament, if we keep going, we say this is a Jewish book. There's a context. There's a place that it came out of. The second thing we have to know is that it's a library of books. The Bible is a library of books. It's not one book. It's, four, it's 66 different books written over 1,500 years by 40 more than 40 different authors. And so when we read the Old Testament, we see it leading us in this story to an anticipation. The Jewish people said, we need a Messiah. We can't rescue ourselves. We've gotta be saved. We've gotta be saved from the empire around us. We need the Meshiach, the Messiah. And the New Testament begins to tell us the story of Jesus. So the question we got to know is what scripture did Jesus read? Look at this, John 5, verse 39. Jesus says this to the religious leaders. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Now watch this. He's talking about the scriptures of the Old Testament. He says, those are inspired, and you're studying them. God has theonoustos. He's breathed into those. And those scriptures, he says, testify about me. Now, let me tell you, this is why Jesus was crucified, by the way. Because to a Jewish audience, he said, I'm as authoritative as your scriptures. And they hung him on a cross. And guess what? He resurrected, and he got that moment that so many of us live for. I told you. I told you I was authoritative, right? And so the entire New Testament then becomes the story of Jesus. The Gospels are written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, a people collecting the stories of Jesus. Let's get these out there. That book of Acts is about the early church. Then we have the rest of the New Testament written in letter form as epistles, letters to the churches. And so the New Testament, the early church believed those were just as inspired. Now they had these tests, to make sure they were inspired. Now, I want to give you a couple, there's a couple big words, but they matter because there's no other way to say them. They had the test of canonization. Canonization meant what books get to be considered authoritative, what books do not. And the way they based this was on the test of apostolicity. It's a hard, It's a big word. Some of you are like, I'm done. Apostolicity, hang with me. It comes from the word apostle. All that it meant was that if you were with Jesus, one of his earlier followers, you were an apostle. The 12 disciples, they were apostles. And they were gaining books, they were guarding books, they were considering books authoritative if they came from the apostles, those who walked with Jesus or those who directly walked with the apostles. That's how they canonized these books. So in 327 AD, maybe as early as the 200s AD, the canonization, the assumption of what considered the New Testament uh, core of books to be inspired are the same 27 books that we have now amazing, right? 2,000 years later, we have the same 27 books that we considered ins- consider inspired. The second test they had, a little bit easier to understand, was the test of reliability. So understand this. When it comes to the Old Testament, when it comes to the New Testament, we have no original copies left. Nobody has Moses's own handwriting. Nobody has that. So when archaeologists study this, when text scholars study this, they consider copies. How many copies are there of this, and how accurate are they? If they're all jumbled, and th- then maybe it's not right. Let me give you an example of how this works. If one of you walked in here this morning and said, I saw a 35-foot green neon green fire truck crash into an alien ship this morning, you're not going to believe it. If one of you walked in there and said that, we would say, you're crazy. Let's talk about Jesus today, right? If 35 of you came in and said, no, we saw the same thing, suddenly there's a reliability. Does this make sense? Are you tracking with me? So when we judge copy after copy after copy after copy, we're looking for reliability. Here's what I want to tell you. Historically, most of you would go through your school years saying, Plato was a real man. I hope that you would say that. I, I hope that you would believe that. Caesar was a real man. Can I just say to you, the reliability, the copies of the copies of the copies that point to Plato as a real person are seven, period. The reliability of Caesar is 10 copies. The reliability of the New Testament Greek manuscripts, anybody got a guess? 5,686. 99.5% accurate when they compare these copies. That's where we see it. Right? Those are the closest things. And I want you to grab that's the that's the inspiration that we're talking about. We also have to understand that when it comes to the New Testament, genre matters. Okay, so if you're if you're a literature teacher, if you're an English teacher, or you're walking through one of those classes, genre matters. You don't read a poem and go, well, they just compared my love to the sun. And so therefore my love is the sun. Nobody does that. It's a poem because genre matters, right? So when we read the scriptures, we have to understand that within this library of books, there are genres. There are historical books. By the way, Genesis is a historical book that starts with a poem and not a science text. We're going to talk about Genesis in the fall for about eight or 35 weeks. I don't know how long it's going to be. Yeah, it's going to be so fun. There, there are historical books. There are poetry and wisdom books. There are prophetic books. And each of these books has to be approached differently. There are uh, gospel books about the stories of Jesus. There are letters to the churches that we have to read as letters to the church. Then we get to this book that all of you want to talk about called Revelation. Not shuns. There's it's not plural. Okay, let's fix that. Right? It's and 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 everybody wants to go. Oh, which president is this referencing as the antichrist? I think it's my president. I think it's your president. And we're not even approaching it in the genre that it was written, which is apocalyptic literature. And we're missing the point. Last couple things I would say about the scripture. It's a Jewish book. It's a library of books. Here, here, here's the, the the next. It's a single story, right? The, the scriptures are a single story. While it consists of 66 books, 40-plus authors, 1,500 years, it tells one story. The narrative can be seen almost as a five-act play. See, think about this. Genesis 1 and 2 is God doing what? Act 1, it's creation, God created something, and he said, this is is what is good. I want you to understand, this is good. Genesis 3, and and kind of 3 through 11, 3 through the rest of scripture, is all about the fall, right? It's all about our brokenness and our sin, that we fall apart, that we cause destruction in the world, that the world is is broken in its relationship to itself with each other, all that, our relationship with God. Then there's the story of Israel, that God comes to Abraham in Genesis, and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you as a nation to bless the world. I'm going, to part, I'm going to write my story through the nation of Israel. And Israel rejects God. You remember this story? He rejects, they reject God over and over and over and over again till the point where they say, we can't do this. And God says, I will send you what? A Messiah. And act four is Jesus. That's what we could say. Now, let me just give you this, this example. Can you imagine if someone unearthed a lost Shakespeare play? Can you imagine if some of you don't care? Can you imagine if someone unearthed the lost George Lucas Star Wars script? Now I got you. And they had the first four acts written out and they said, Oh, let's let this look, we've got a masterpiece, whether it's Shakespeare or George Lucas, we've got a masterpiece. And it's so important that we're going to put people together around it to study it. We're we're actually going to hold weekly meetings, Sunday mornings and we're going to try to grow these meetings and get people talking about George Lucas's lost script or Shakespeare's lost play. We're going to actually talk about these first four acts and we're going to we're going to actually examine like what what is the language that Shakespeare wrote in and George Lucas, what did he mean when he said Yoda? What did he not mean when he said Jedi? Like how to let's huddle up and talk about it. And then at the end of those meetings, we're going to walk out and and then we'll just do whatever we want for the week and then we'll come back next Sunday morning and we'll talk about all this stuff again cuz it's just a masterpiece. See, the problem would be that there was intended to be a fifth act. Shakespeare had five acts, right? Are you with me? Thanks, Hannah. She's going to correct me about Plato and Caesar too, because I think there's some stuff I got to work that out. Okay. All right, well <laughs> I got a source. Um, see, the fifth act was meant to be written. and it's the same when it comes to Jesus. When Jesus ascended, he said, "Now go and make disciples, and the fifth act is the church. And the rest of the New Testament is the book of Acts, the letters to the churches. But guess what, friends? You're still living in Act 5. You've been handed the script. You've been handed the word of God and said, now, go live this out. And so while this is a single story, I want to make my final point that it's a single story, but it is a Jesus story. It is a Jesus story. See, Jesus didn't write the Bible, but he is the reason we have it. If he didn't rise from the dead, there would be no reason for this to exist. When that tomb was empty, the same men and women who had run for their lives went to the streets proclaiming the truth of this story. They began to say, we know the word of God and we want you to hear it. The frauds became the fearless, the lost People became the leaders. The cowards became the courageous because of the word of God. I'm going to invite the band to come.